Hello, it's great to see you. Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the moment with the assistance of our team of reporters around the globe. My name is James Paniki. Thank you for your company. Now, in a kinder, more loving world, trash talk would have no place in the struggle for market share. Why denigrate your competitor rather than simply singing the praises of your own product? But in this world, the one that we live in, a company disparaging a rival's product or services is par for the course. Fine, but when does trash talk become a competition issue? Nicholas Hurst is a member of our Brussels team. He's too polite to engage in trash talk himself, but he has been covering this issue and will be joining us in just over 10 minutes' time. First up, though, to the west coast of the United States in the Capital One trial in which a woman named Paige Thompson has been found guilty of wire fraud and hacking in one of the largest breaches in US history. It's a tricky story. Thompson may not have benefited from the data breach. Nonetheless, she was found guilty under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. She'll be sentenced in September. The case has been unfolding in Seattle in Washington state and our senior correspondent Amy Miller has been covering the trial and she joins me now. So Amy, uh, first up, just outline the government's uh, case for me. What were the charges? Uh, Well, Thompson is a former uh, software engineer with Amazon Web Services. And according to the government, Thompson was trying to engineer a cryptojacking scheme. And she started that out by creating proxy scanners. She knew how all of this worked because she used to work at AWS. And so she created a a scheme uh, to create proxy scanners that identified AWS servers with misconfigured firewalls. Um, Then she used those misconfigured servers to steal security credentials from companies such as Capital One that she would then use to set up a cryptocurrency mining operation. And so along the way of setting up this cryptocurrency mining operation, she downloaded personal information belonging to more than 100 million credit card Capital One credit card customers or or potential customers. And according to the government, uh, she was trying to find a way to sell that information, but but wasn't able to find anyone to buy it or just never followed through with her plan. Now, there was a lot of evidence presented to the court. What was the most damaging evidence in your view? Well, the government had plenty of forensic evidence from the FBI and security experts at Amazon Web Services and at Capital One, all of them linking the breach to Thompson. Um, they looked through all of her computer files, all of her social media posts, and I think uh, they even had the actual computer and the files that she downloaded uh, that she had set up for crypto mining. But I think, in my opinion, as an observer, uh, I think the most damaging evidence were were Thompson's own words. Uh, She was, uh, according to the government, she was bragging because she wanted to online, because she wanted everyone to know how smart she was in the tech community. And so she did a lot of bragging in text messages and social media posts that were particularly incriminating. Uh, She was bragging in online chat rooms about earning $5,000 a month from her crypto mining efforts. And at one point, uh, she reached out to a woman named Kat Valentine, a complete stranger she didn't know. Uh, Kat was selling um, or was talking about uh, shoes with hacker themes on them, and that really caught uh, Ms. Thompson's attention. So she reached out to her and began telling... uh, Ms. Valentine, everything that she had been doing (laughs) or hinting to her about what she had been doing with with Capital One's data. And um, 
So she sort of wrote her off initially, but then Cat Valentine wrote her off initially, and then um, she started thinking about it later, and uh, it's decided that you know this was this was uh, some serious information that Thompson had downloaded, and, and eventually turned her into Capital One. Okay, so these all amount to very serious accusations against uh, Thompson. What was her defense? Her defense was that she was a so-called white hat hacker and that the government was overreaching with its charges under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, the DOJ and the Supreme Court have rolled back that law a little bit, uh, narrowed it, so to speak, saying that uh, you really can't use it to go after people who are doing legitimate security research or using it for legitimate purposes. And so that's what the defense was arguing. Um, that she was uh, using methods at, that ethical hackers who hunt for software vulnerabilities and report them to companies, that, that's what she was doing so that they could be fixed. Um, and, and the other element of the defense uh, is that Thompson uh, is a transgendered woman who's struggled with some mental health issues over over the years. And there, there were some mental health exams that she had to undergo, and those were ultimately not shown to the jury as evidence. But uh, some of her mental and psychological challenges that she faced in the tech industry, they would uh, try to get witnesses like Kat Valentine to sort of talk about what it would be like for a transgendered woman in the tech industry. And but uh, uh, I don't obviously, you know, it didn't get very far with the jury. We should also say that Thompson herself never took the witness stand, right? That's correct. Right. Thompson never, never, they never questioned Thompson herself. Yeah. They did question a longtime associate. The defense did, did uh, question a longtime friend who had testified about Thompson's tendency to make outrageous statements for attention. And they also questioned a computer science professor from the University of Michigan, Alex Halderman, who testified that Thompson was authorized to access the computers. And that was pretty much the defense case. They really relied on the government to prove its case and kept pressing to the jurors that she had a Fifth Amendment right not to testify. But Thompson was in court. She was. She was there every day. She appeared very thin, um, almost frail, uh, I would have to say. At times during the testimony, she seemed really nervous, and she would just sort of quietly tug at her hair, you know, while she was sitting at the defense table. Um, and, and the defense told jurors during opening statements that they wouldn't see her friends and family in the courtroom. So she was really, I feel like, very alone during the trial. She didn't have a lot of a strong support network there. And you mentioned the, uh, the jury. Who were the jurors? Well, there were 15 men and women from uh, across the Seattle area, and they were from a wide range of professional and uh, non-professional backgrounds, including the tech industry. Uh, there were some software engineers, some architects, small business owners, a small business liaison with the city of Seattle, uh, a product design director at Square, a retired teacher, a scientist, a handyman, and a nurse. So I was really surprised that uh, they typically, when I cover these tech trials, the first jurors to go were the ones who had any understanding of, of tech. But uh, they, they, they allowed a couple of people who had a strong background in, in the tech industry to stay on as jurors. So that was surprising.
Well, let's talk about that because the selection of jurors is, as you've mentioned, often a delicate issue in these kinds of cases. Were there any major surprises in the selection process? I think the most interesting thing about it to me watching was that Judge Lasnik uh, was very careful about weeding out any potential jurors who might have any issue with Thompson's transgendered status. Uh, several people who said they couldn't be unbiased based on their personal or religious beliefs uh, were immediately excused, and Judge Lasnik was very adamant about that, and, and jurors that really didn't uh, didn't want to be there, he got rid of those pretty quick as well. Now, the demeanor of the judge is often interesting to observe in these highly technical cases. What can you tell me about how the judge managed proceedings. Judge Lasnik, uh, he's a Clinton appointee, so he's been around since the late 1990s uh, in federal court. I think he had been a state court judge before then. So he's very he's very experienced jurist, and uh, he sometimes he would get frustrated with questioning by lawyers on both sides if it was if they were pressing their point for too long or if they were repeating the same question, he would, he would get a little frustrated and tell him to just speed it up and move along faster. Uh, but for the most part, he was really a steady but quiet presence in the courtroom, and he was always there for, for guidance if, if the jurors had any questions about any sort of legal matter or, or legal bit of legal history, he could chime in. And he was quite a lively storyteller, especially during the breaks. Uh, he liked to share uh, amusing anecdotes from his legal career, and he liked to sort of joke around about other judges that he he. He worked with. So I, I really enjoyed hearing some of his um, his anecdotes about his, his, his years as a litigator and as a judge. He sounds very colourful, but as for the sentencing, now that's scheduled for September. What is the maximum penalty that Thompson is facing? Up to 20 years, possibly. Uh, wire fraud is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Uh, illegally accessing a protected computer and damaging a protected computer are punishable by up to five years in prison. So it'll really be up to Judge Lasnik to decide and how much he weighs factors like her mental health issues or, you know, the fact that she didn't actually sell any of this data and make any money off of it. So that that's where those kind of factors, I think, will come into play. Amy, thank you so much for your work on this case. I really appreciate it, and it's been great talking as always. Thank you, James. Great talking to you too. Amy Miller is a senior MLEX correspondent. She was speaking to us from our San Francisco offices, and Amy's analysis of this case is online and well worth a read. You can find it at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very latest in MLEX's reporting and analysis. And that's where you'll also find an archive of our podcasts, if that's what floats your boat. Coming up, when does insulting your rival become an issue for antitrust enforcers? And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to MLEX's weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Where possible, please leave a review because it helps to guide new listeners to the show. Now to Brussels, where the European Commission has announced an investigation into Vifor Pharma. That is a Swiss pharmaceutical company. Nothing unusual there. This wouldn't be the first probe to target that industry. What's unusual is the nature of the investigation, with a focus on reports that the company had denigrated the product of its rival. Bad-mouthing your competitor isn't necessarily a classy move, but is it anti-competitive? 
Nicholas Hurst is MLEX's chief correspondent covering EU merger reviews and antitrust probes, and he joins me now from Brussels. So, Nicholas, what is the company and what is the EU investigation all about? It's very interesting. It's a new case that was announced on Monday, and the Commission said it was investigating a Swiss company called Vi4 Pharma for trash talking, arrival, or disparaging in, in the jargon. Vifor Pharma makes a intravenous, intravenous sort of an injection of iron um, that's necessary for patients with um, high levels of iron deficiency and can't take pills to do it. The Commission said it had received a complaint from a company called Pharma Cosmos, and the Commission suggested that Vifor Pharma had been saying negative stuff about the safety record of Pharma Cosmos's drug called Monofair. Now, that is obviously very serious when you uh, impugn a pharma company's safety record. Now, you managed to unearth some interesting background about this probe. What do we need to know? So the Commission's press release was pretty cryptic, and it it wasn't really clear what sort of uh, slagging off you needed to engage in to get into this level of uh, potential trouble. Um, But uh, after referring to a website that you may have heard of called (laughs) google.com, we came up with these, we came up with the records of a panel in the UK that is run by the pharma industry. And it's a source of self-regulation to make sure that the pharma companies behave themselves. And amid those records, we found a whole list of findings by the panel detailing disputes between Vifor Pharma and Pharma Cosmos going back seemingly as far back as 2011. So what do they tell us? They tell us that uh, Pharma Cosmos has complained several times about a pattern of comments from uh, Vifor Pharma going back as far as 2011. What kind of comments were these? Well, it's never express you know, laying into your rival as as you might do in the sort of World Wrestling Federation match or, or something. <laughs> but more it's sort of, you know, the salespeople laden their talk with suggestions that only Vifor uh, Pharma's uh, treatment is really safe. The implication being that Pharma Cosmos's alternative is not that safe. All the sales reps talking about studies that perhaps did not reflect the medical orthodoxy at the time, uh, but suggested that Pharmacosmos' products were um, not as safe as, as they, could, they could be. So it, this has been running, this is a long running spat. And the feeling was is that Vifor Pharma was reaching out or, or when it was um, contacted, was sort of implicitly or more like implicitly suggesting that its product was safer than that of Okay, so there's clearly no love lost between these two companies, but this takes us into slightly uncomfortable territory. We, as in MLEX, tend to cover capital C competition matters. Is this something that can be or should be considered an abuse of competition law? The first thing to say is that Vifor Pharma is potentially or allegedly dominant because its product is by far and away the most important, which presumably means it has the whole distribution network, it has all the contacts of the relevant nurses and health healthcare professionals and so on, so on, so on. Um, can this be an abuse under EU law? 
it's not 100% clear. Now, there is a case that dates back about 20, almost 20 years against AstraZeneca, where it was sanctioned for misleading uh, patent authorities. So not slagging off a rival, but lying to, to, to regulators. So it's still, it's sort of in the right direction, but it's different. Yeah, save that case. If we want to find out, if we want to see the case law on this issue, we have to look, go to France, which has pioneered so-called disparagement cases. It's had, I can think of three different cases in the last 10 years where it's sanctioned different pharma companies for, quote, denigrating uh, arrival. So, but what is the criterion that we need to use here? I mean, do you have to outright lie about your rival or is it enough to just uh, talk it down and engage in what you describe so colourfully as trash talk before? That's right. So if you were outright lying, I think then, judging by the case law, you'd clearly be in trouble, at least in France. But what's interesting about the French cases is that they've they've gone further than, than you might expect. So in one case, the pharma company uh, didn't overtly criticise the rivals, but it couched its language uh, suggesting that only its treatment could really guarantee the, the um, recuperation of patients. So the criticism was implicit. You can see that kind of pushes the envelope or, or expands the scope quite a lot of what can be called. Does all of this really depend on who you're speaking to in terms of how you might interpret the comments and how you might view this whole issue? Yeah, that's right. Of course, if a pharma company was trash-talking their rival to you and I, we would fall for it hook, line and sinker. But you might think that medical professionals or insurance uh, companies or regulatory agencies above all uh, would go off and check their facts. Not so, at least not in the, uh, in the eyes of the French Competition Authority. Uh, probably fairly, it's con- it has said that uh, doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals are so inundated with information are so overworked and are also so concerned about the medical liability, i.e. being taken to court for, for making a mistake, that not, they're not going to go off and double-check the information and that the, almost the mere fact of planting a seed of doubt in, say, a doctor's mind is enough to make him or her you know, really hesitate before prescribing the rival because, you know, heaven forbid, they don't want to end up in court. And this brings us back to the main question put forward by your piece of analysis. Is this really a problem for antitrust regulators? You've explained that uh, in the eyes of French authorities, it certainly is. They see it uh, firmly as as a competition issue. Or should it really just be seen as an issue of uh, slander or even defamation or something other than competition? First, I think it's important to say that we do not know whether the materials that were looked at in the UK are the same as what the Commission is looking at. That's, a, that's an assumption we're making. It's probably a fair assumption. There must be some overlap. But you know, looking at how the UK uh, case has gone, self-regulation, sort of intervention by this panel, it's quite obvious that it's been pretty toothless. Well, it seems to have been pretty toothless. You know, the spat ran and ran and ran and ran. So... Yeah, I think you're, the first thing you do is you'd say, well, isn't there some sort of regulation? And then you look at what's happened and you say, ah, it doesn't really seem to have been working. And then you look at Vifor Pharma and it is potentially dominant. And then you look at the conduct and you say, yeah, you know, this kind of behavior could be distorting competition because 
it could make it materially more difficult for a you know, decent alternative to make inroads. So I think it's probably not, you know, your first port of call probably ought not to be competition authorities in such a situation. But at least I feel like I can see that, yes, you know, this could potentially be an issue for the trust busters. The trust busters will have to become more familiar with the trash talking of the pharmaceutical industry, and that would be uh, great for us to be able to follow. Nicholas, this is the kind of quirky story that you do so well. Uh, Thank you for talking to me today. It's an honour, James. Nicholas Hurst is MLEX's chief correspondent in Brussels, covering M&A and antitrust. His analysis of this unusual competition issue is lots of fun to read and ready for you to check out right now. Just head to our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com and click on the News Hub tab. And in the interest of absolute transparency, I should say that my wife works for a global pharmaceutical company, but one with no links to the companies mentioned today. Now, sadly, that's where we'll have to leave things this week. Let me assure you, however, that we'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. A big thanks to our marketing team for getting today's program to you. They were in Brussels for the MLEX summer soiree, but were able to drag themselves away from the canapes to make sure that our podcast listeners got their weekly fix. Thank you very much for that, guys. We certainly do appreciate it. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. See you soon. Bye for now.